what do you like about being white? Leftist TV host Mark Lamont Hill deploys that trick question to anti-critical race theory warrior Chris Rufo, my friend Chris Rufo. But does Mark Lamont Hill know that critical race theory is not only racist, which it is, it's Marxist. Plus, USA Today censors the word male from an article written by a teenage girl about suffering defeat in a track competition to biological males identifying as women. She called it unfair. USA Today calls it hateful language. I'm Liz Wheeler. Welcome to The Liz Wheeler Show. Thanks for joining us today. And thank you so much for your incredible reception to the show last week. It was absolutely phenomenal to see how many people subscribed and tuned in and gave us five-star ratings and wrote to us about how much they loved the show. It really makes what we do worthwhile. So thank you for that. As you know, I aim to be your go-to podcast when you need to know, is that true? What are the facts? Is this reality? The left's Achilles heel, of course, is either they lie and they assume that you won't fact check them, or they're ignorant and assume that you won't do your research. Well, I know you, I know my audience, I know you like your research. So together you and I are going to destroy that modus operandi and we are going to be champions of reality instead. Because now is not the time to cave to the radical left or to corporate wokeism or cultural Marxism or establishment Republicans or AOC or teachers unions or big tech. Now is the time to be a culture warrior and never back down. So do not be a squish because we have no room for squishes on this show. Okay, what do you like about being white? Mark Lamont Hill asked. Now we know for a fact that critical race theory has infiltrated American society. And speaking of securing our society and securing our lives, I wanna talk to you about your online searches. I wanna talk to you about the searches for something that maybe you wouldn't want others knowing about. I'm not talking about something dirty. I'm talking about personal things. I'm talking about personal things that you look for online. I know most of you are thinking, probably thinking, why don't you just use incognito mode? Well, let me tell you something. This is not something maybe that you want to hear. Incognito mode does not actually hide your activity. It doesn't matter what mode you use or how many times you clear your browsing history. Your internet service provider can still see every single website that you have ever visited. That's why even when I'm at home, I never go online without using ExpressVPN right? It doesn't matter if you get your internet from Verizon or Comcast or any other internet service provider. Internet service providers in the U.S. can legally sell your information to ad companies. No questions asked. All of your information, all of your browser history, all of your searches. ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so that your internet service provider cannot see the sites you visit. Now that sounds more like it. ExpressVPN also keeps all of your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. Most of the time, I don't even realize I have ExpressVPN on. It runs just in the background and it's so easy to use. All you have to do is tap one button and you're protected. It's available on all devices, phones, computers, even your smart TV, all at once if you want. If you're like me, you're on all your devices at once. So Protect your online activity today with a VPN rated number one by CNET and Wired. Visit my exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash Liz, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash Liz. Expressvpn.com slash Liz to learn more. Okay, so leftist TV host Mark Lamont Hill asked anti-critical race theory activist Chris Rufo, 
what he likes about being white. Take a listen. And if I were to say to you right now, Christopher, what do you like about being white? What would you say? <laughs> I don't know. I, again, it's such an amorphous term. It's like a census term or a, a, but, a crude but, but can, can, kind you, can of you do me a favor? Indulge term. me. Indulge me for one. Just we're running out of time. Indulge me for a minute. I understand you see it as as all these things, but you surely recognize that the world sees you as white. You know the world reads you as white. And if you were to ask me some things I like about being black, I could talk about cultural norms. I could talk about tradition. I could talk about the kind of commonalities I feel around the diaspora. If I were to ask you what, particularly if you're saying whiteness is a thing that is being constructed as negative and shouldn't be, name name something positive that you like about being white. Well, sure. I, I you know I'll, I'll answer with a with a, a thing there. There's a lot of documents that are floating around public schools that say things like uh, timeliness, showing up on time is a white supremacist value or a white value, white dominant value, things like rationality, things like the enlightenment, things like, uh, you know, uh, uh, objectivity. And uh, these are very strange things to be ascribed to a racial identity. My view is that these are actually should be ascribed to every individual human being, every individual human being, regardless of whatever racial category we impose on them. Right, but Christopher, that doesn't answer the, that doesn't answer the question, though. No. You, you're, you're telling you're, te you're, you're telling me you're making straw men about things that are ascribed to whiteness that you think are wrongfully ascribed to whiteness. I'm saying if whiteness isn't a negative thing, and there's something that you actually and that whiteness actually shouldn't be constructed as all negative, name something positive about being that you believe is positive about being white. Again, I, I don't buy into the framework that the world can be reduced into these metaphysical categories of whiteness and blackness. I think that's wrong. I think we should look at people as individuals. I think we should celebrate uh, different people's accomplishments. And uh, again, I think the idea, you, you mentioned Ignatiev. Ignatiev says the goal is to, quote, abolish the white race. Um, in any other context, this would be interpreted as a near genocidal slur. I don't buy into it. The reason I'm not going to answer your question is I reject that categorization. I think of myself as an individual human being uh, with my own capabilities. And I would hope that we could both judge each other as individuals. Uh, and uh, come to common values on that basis. Fair enough. I, I would argue, though, that the the luck that the ability to say I don't see race, I don't. Okay, so he obviously knocked that answer out of the park. He was caught off guard by it because it's a trick question. He knocked it out of the park. So kudos to him on that. Um, what he also should have said, he should have said, "Well, I like being white because that's how God made him. That's how God made me in God's image." Likewise, Mark Lamont Hill should like being black because that is how God made him in God's image. There's no racial superiority or inferiority in God's image. But that, what we heard, the question from Mark Lamont Hill, this is critical race theory. It's challenged by Rufo. Mark Lamont Hill was essentially defending it. And that's the problem with critical race theory. We hear this term a lot, critical race theory. We hear about the battleground in public schools over critical race theory. We hear leftists defending it, just calling it a perspective. But this is the problem with critical race theory. It demonizes white people because it views, critical race theory views everything through this prism of race instead of viewing people like individuals. So we have to ask the question, why does critical race theory do this? Because it's not pure racial hatred. It's not bigotry necessarily. It is bigotry in action, but it's not bigotry in intention. Racialism is actually a tactic. It's a tool used by critical race theory and critical race theorists to tear down American institutions in order to impose Marxism. And you know I don't make claims lightly. I don't make claims like this without backing them up with fact. So let's take a journey back and look at this question. What is critical race theory exactly? How would you explain this to your family members? How would you explain this to your friends? How would you explain this in a political discussion? 
in order to answer this question, we have to know, well, where did it come from? Where did critical race theory originate from? The answer to this is actually simple. Critical race theory originated from the Frankfurt School. Okay, the Frankfurt School was the originator of what's called critical theory. And critical theory is what I would describe as, as the grandfather of critical race theory. Okay, and we'll talk about both critical theory, critical theory's child, critical legal theory, and then critical race theory. It's important to know exactly how this came into uh, American institutions. So critical theory itself came from a 1937 manifesto, okay, out of the Institute for Social Research in Frankfurt. This is known as the Frankfurt School. And just so you know, the Frankfurt School was a home of Marxists. In fact, the original name of this institute was going to be Institute for Marximus, which is translated Institute for Marxism. You can't be clearer than that. But of course, these Marxists, as usual, wanted to downplay or hide or camouflage their true intent. And so they decided just to call it the Frankfurt School. They didn't call it the Institute for Marxism. So critical theory that came from this manifesto out of the Frankfurt School, its intention from the very beginning, of course, was Marxism. And the intent of Marxism is to tear down Western institutions, right? Because you can't, you can't marry Western institutions, the freedom that underpins Western institutions with Marxism. So critical theory was a way of tearing down Western institutions. So in this manifesto, it was written, by the way, by Max Horkheimer. This is an important name. There are a couple of names today that I think that you should remember. One of them is Max Horkheimer. Max Horkheimer wrote this manifesto, and in it, he claimed that traditional theory, which is a traditional way of looking at the world, objective truth versus what's not true, he said that it fetishized knowledge, okay? And what he meant by that is if you look at something, and you see truth as empirical and universal versus you see delusion and something that's not true on the opposite side. He said that that fetishized knowledge, critical theory, he claimed, quote, held that man could not be objective and that there are no universal truths. So you're probably already thinking, well, this sounds familiar. We hear this from the radical left in the United States. There is no objective truth. There's only lived experiences and lived reality that nothing can be objectively true or false. Yes, we see this in our country, and it goes further. Okay, so critical theory essentially teaches that the idea that the so-called oppressed stand in the way of a Marxist revolution when they adhere to the cultural norms or societal beliefs of their so-called oppressors, okay? So if we buy into this, or critical theory as critical theory teaches, then this begets a need for people to be re-educated. If a people buy into the idea of an institution, then, and you want to tear down that institution, then you have to re-educate the people so that they don't buy into the idea of that institution, okay? So it begets the need for people to be re-educated. If people need to be re-educated, this begets a need to destroy societal norms through, you guessed it, criticism, or as the critical theorists call it, relentless criticism, hence the name, critical theory. The result of this is a new system of power, and again, this is a part you'll see in America as critical theory and critical race theory become prevalent. The result is a new system of power and even new definitions of the systems through the prism of this idea that everyone is either oppressed or an oppressor, okay? So the goal of this critical theory is Marxism. This is not arguable. There are some people who say critical theory, or in this case, critical race theory, is a perspective through which to view history. But no, it's not. 
the founders of critical theory were openly praised socialism. And Marxism, Horkheimer himself, the one who wrote the manifesto, he praised the socialist Soviet Union by saying, and I quote, he who has eyes for the meaningless injustice of the imperialist world, which in no way is to be explained by technical impotence, will regard the events in Russia as the progressive, painful attempt to overcome this injustice, end quote. So Horkheimer was excusing the atrocities of socialism because he thought it justified the fact that Marxism was going to be imposed, okay? So Marx and Engels, Karl Marx, as you know, the, the author of the Communist Manifesto, he had called for a worker-led revolution. Well, that didn't really happen in large part. In little areas, it did, sure, but in general, worldwide, it did not happen by the 1930s. So what happens next? If this idea, this way of ushering in Marxism by a worker-led revolution didn't work, then what happens? Well, the founder of the Italian Communist Party, his name is Antonio Gramsci, he had an idea. He had an idea for how to get around the fact that workers weren't staging this revolution. He said, well, workers weren't staging a revolution because they continued to believe or adhere to the belief system and the values and the institutions of the ruling class. And when he said institutions, he actually named what he was talking about. He said the workers continued to buy into the idea of the family, of a nation state, of capitalism, and of God. Okay? So Gramsci believed, instead of just the workers revolting, Gramsci said workers needed to be re-educated, and they needed to be re-educated by a revolutionary vanguard. Okay? So we see in this, this is the first step, tearing down the norms. So now enter critical theory. The goal, destroying the norms that the workers supposedly bought into as a way of sparking a revolution that would enter in Marxism. So that happened in Europe, and then it got transplanted to America. And here's how it got transplanted to America. And it's in the baby stages still, so follow along with me because this is very important. How it came to America, Horkheimer and others at the Frankfurt School left Germany to escape the Nazis, and they found refuge at Columbia University. That's right. A college and Ivy League school here in the United States allowed these Marxists to set up camp at, a, at the teacher's college there. This is 1935 that this happened, okay? So after they set up camp at Columbia University, and then after the defeat of the Nazis, Horkheimer and most others returned to Germany. Good riddance. However, they left behind Horkheimer's assistant, Herbert Marcuse. Okay, Marcuse became one of the leading spokespeople of the new left in our country. Marcuse made critical theory into critical race theory in the United States. This happened a long time ago. You might be surprised because we didn't hear a lot about critical race theory or critical theory until recently, but this is not new. It took decades for it to become as ingrained in our culture as it is. And we have to understand how it became so ingrained if we want to unravel this and get rid of it from our nation, which we do, unless we want to become a Marxist state. So Marcuse made critical theory into critical race theory. This is what he did. He identified a new so-called worker for the revolution right? He realized that Marx's idea of a worker-led revolution wasn't going to work. Gramsci realized the same thing. And Marcuse identified a different demographic that could be re-educated to overthrow societal norms. He identified racial minorities. This is his quote, Marcuse's quote. Underneath the conservative popular base is the substratum of the outcasts and outsiders, the exploited and persecuted of other races and other colors. Okay? He said their opposition is revolutionary, even if their consciousness is not. So all the way back 
racial minorities were identified as being a tool of the far left, a tool the far left wanted to exploit and use to obtain their political agenda, Marxism. This wasn't about the good of racial minorities. This wasn't about bettering their lives. It wasn't about taking care of them. It wasn't about righting old wrongs. No. Racial minorities were identified by Marcuse as just being a useful tool to usher in Marxism. Okay, then we need to actually back up for a second. So first critical theory came from the Frankfurt School, right? And now we have critical race theory. But there was actually one iteration in between critical legal theory. And this is critically important, pun intended, because of the way Black Lives Matter is focusing on the criminal justice system, on law enforcement and law. So what is critical legal theory? Well, according to the Cornell entry for critical legal studies, they describe it as follows. Critical legal studies is a theory which states that the law is necessarily intertwined with social issues, particularly stating that the law has inherent social biases. Proponents of critical legal studies believe that the law supports the interests of those who create the law. As such, critical legal studies states that the law supports a power dynamic which favors the historically privileged and disadvantages the historically underprivileged. Critical legal studies finds that the wealthy and the powerful use the law as an instrument for oppression in order to maintain their place in hierarchy. They continue to say, this is on Cornell, quote, many in the critical legal studies movement want to overturn the hierarchical structures of modern society and they focus on the law as a tool in achieving this goal. Okay, does that sound familiar? It certainly does to me. I see that inherent to the Black Lives Matter movement. They're trying to demonize not only law enforcement, our criminal justice system, and the law itself. This is critical legal studies on our streets. Okay, so there's another man. This is another name that you should know. His name is Derek Bell. He is known as the godfather of critical race theory. Okay, he quotes another critical race theory scholar or activist, whichever word you think is more appropriate. Derek Bell, the godfather of critical race theory, quotes critical race theory activist Angela P. Harris as explaining that critical race theory comes from critical legal theory, right? And the way that it comes from critical legal theory is this commitment to dismantle all aspects of society through, of course, criticism coming from the name critical theory. Because the law, quote, this is Derek Bell, systematically privileges subjects who are white. Because of that, critical race theory calls for a transformative resistance strategy. So you can see critical theory morphed into critical legal theory, critical legal studies, it's called sometimes here in the United States, that morphed into critical race theory. Okay? So another architect of critical race theory, his name is Richard Delgado. He says this about critical race theory, quote, critical race theory builds on the insights of two previous movements, critical legal studies and radical feminism. He actually wrote literally the book on critical race theory. It's called Critical Race Theory, an Introduction. So Derek Bell, who is the godfather of critical race theory, again, just so that we get all of our names straight here, he admits the radical goals of critical race theory. He says, and I quote, as I see it, critical race theory recognizes that revolutionizing a culture begins with a radical assessment of it. So again, you take this academic work, I guess we'll call it, you take this theorizing that you see from these activists and you juxtapose that with what we're seeing on the streets from the Black Lives Matter movement. We, we can see this justification, this explanation of the violence. I mean, the rioting, the arson, the looting, the violence against police. 
the cancel culture, the agitators we see everywhere, we see this justification of violence, and this is where it came from. Okay, Derek Bell goes on to say that the work of critical race theory authors, quote, is often disruptive because its commitment to anti-racism goes well beyond civil rights, integration, affirmative action, and other liberal measures. I mean, that's striking. That's striking. Bell actually says that proponents of critical race theory don't like liberal ideas. And when I'm talking liberal, I'm talking classic liberalism. I'm not talking about radical leftism. I'm talking about the idea that we have inherent rights and that government exists to protect our inherent rights. So Derek Bell, godfather of critical race theory, says proponents of critical race theory, quote, are highly suspicious of the liberal agenda, distrust its method, and want to retain what they see as a valuable strain of egalitarianism, which may exist despite and not because of liberalism. Okay, so this right here is the difference between advocating for civil rights and equal rights and being an anti-racist, okay? Because civil rights and equal rights are exactly, are exactly that. We believe in equal, equality under the law, freedom and liberty and justice for every person, regardless of your immutable characteristics. Anti-racism, which is just a misnomer for critical race theory, does not believe in a colorblind society. Critical race theory actually doesn't believe in rights at all. We have the words of the godfather of critical race theory to prove this. This is not me drawing a conclusion. This is Derek Bell himself saying, quote, being committed to free speech may seem like a neutral principle, but it is not. Thus, proclaiming that I am committed equally to allowing free speech for the KKK and to live crew is a non-neutral value judgment. One that asserts that the freedom to say hateful things is more important than the freedom to be free from the victimization, stigma, and humiliation that free speech entails. Bell goes on to say, the concept of rights is indeterminate and vague. Indeterminate and vague. Okay? So if you don't believe in the concept of rights, and you specifically target freedom of speech as being a right that is not, the way that Bell does, then you've gotten to the point where you're challenging the whole system of our government, which is based on rights. Bell continues by saying, Charles Lawrence, it's a law professor, speaks for many critical race theory adherents when he disagrees with the notion that laws are or can be written from a neutral perspective. Remember, this is not Bell, this is me talking. Critical race theory posits that there is no objective truth, that people cannot be neutral, cannot be unbiased. So Bell says, Lawrence asserts that such a neutral perspective does not and cannot exist, that we all speak from a particular point of view from what he calls a positioned perspective. The problem is that not all positioned perspectives are equally valued, equally heard, or equally included. From the perspective of critical race theory, some positions have historically been oppressed, distorted, ignored, silenced, destroyed, appropriated, commodified, and marginalized, and all of this not accidentally. End quote. So what do we draw from this? It's, it's actually shocking to listen to. It's shocking to read. When I was researching this, I didn't think that the founders of critical theory and critical legal studies and critical race theory, I didn't think they'd be so blunt and so honest. I thought I'd have to draw conclusions, that I'd have to look for these clues. I didn't. In everything that they've said, everything that they've written, every recording I listened to, they admit it. Critical race theory is a theory, but it's really a tool. It's a tool to enact a strategy to impose Marxism on our country. And this is how they do it. They first define every single person as either an oppressor or someone who has been oppressed. 
hello, victim culture. Okay, and this is often based on immutable characteristics. In the case of critical race theory, obviously it's race. They then want to re-educate people to understand this dynamic of everyone being either oppressed or an oppressor in everything. And we see this in public schools, right? We see these land acknowledgments, these apologies, this white guilt, this white privilege. They're re-educating people to understand their invented dynamic of everyone being either oppressed or an oppressor based on an immutable characteristic, in this case, race. They're destroying objective reality by doing this. They don't believe in objective truth, and they're trying to reduce everything that we see in the world around us to just being a competing political narrative and lived experiences or lived reality that completely destroys objective truth. They have to do that in order to tear down cultural institutions that they believe are adhered to by these oppressed racial minorities because they need these oppressed racial minorities to spark a revolution that Karl Marx's workers did not. Okay? Isn't this crazy? So if the premises of critical race theory are true, if we view everything through this prism of oppressed and oppressor, if everybody's a victim of some hierarchy, then yeah, the only recourse is to destroy it all. And that's what we're seeing from groups like Black Lives Matter. They want to defund the police, abolish our borders, abolish prisons, abolish the Senate, abolish the Electoral College, abolish ICE, abolish voter ID, abolish the family, abolish capitalism, abolish private schools and charter schools, abolish religious freedom, abolish free speech, abolish rights, abolish objective truth, abolish reality. We're seeing it play out before our very eyes, the strategy that was created 100 years ago, almost. And they want to replace it with Marxism just like they plotted in the Frankfurt School and via critical theory. So when you hear someone like Mark Lamont Hill asking Chris Rufo, what do you like about being white? You have to ask yourself, how is Mark Lamont Hill practicing critical race theory here? Okay, so when we look at this, when we listen to this, when we hear this question, what do you like about being white? He is defending critical race theory. He's acting like a Marxist because he's labeling everybody as either oppressed or oppressor viewing everything through the prism of race. And he should be called out for that. Because what he's doing is he's taking part, active part, in what these original Marxists viewed as a Marxist revolution in our country. And I'd love to know if he's doing that intentionally or if he's acting as a tool of this radical leftist by accident. I'd love to hear an answer to that, truly. Mark Lamont Hill, do you know what you're doing or are you doing this ignorantly? Are you actively trying to take part in this Marxist revolution, or have you been duped by it? I'm open to any type of debate, any type of discussion. Please, if you would answer my question, I would love to know. Okay, speaking of banding together against this nonsense, I really ask you to submit your email address to me at lizwheelershow.com. Subscribe to our email list so that we can always stay in touch. As you know, Big Tech has censored me in the past. On Facebook, they demonetized my page. On YouTube, they've yanked down my videos. On Instagram, they slap unwarranted fact-checked warnings over uh, my posts. I don't want Big Tech to rule our relationship. You shouldn't either. Every day, conservatives like me are being kicked off of social media. If you want to make sure that you never lose access to The Liz Wheeler Show and all of the content I'm delivering, please join my email list. It's very important to me that we stay in touch if that ever does happen to us. Because regardless, I'm here to stay. They're never going to shut me up. 
I'm always going to deliver these facts to you. Go to LizWheelerShow.com and drop your email so that I can still reach out to you if, or God forbid when, Big Tech pulls the plug. That is LizWheelerShow.com. Drop me your email so that we can stay in touch if the worst happens. Okay, so banding together to fight against critical race theory, which has infiltrated the American society, what can we do to stop it? I mean, it's the most helpless feeling in the world to see what's happening to our country. We want to cast our ballots, of course, for the right candidates, but that happens, what, once every two years, once every four years? What can we do to stop it? Well, first of all, we can reject the premise. We can identify it, as we just did with Mark Lamont Hill. We can identify it first and then reject the premise. But there are some other organizations and groups that are actively working to eliminate critical race theory from our schools specifically, from our corporate boardrooms, from our society in general. Ryan Gerdusky, a friend of mine, he created a new PAC. It's called the 1776 Project PAC. It focuses on school board elections. The idea is to vote out or make sure that they're never elected in the first place any school board member who believes in critical theory, critical legal studies, or critical race theory. Instead, the 1776 Project PAC, and this is not an ad, this is just a really good thing that my friend Ryan Gerdusky is doing. I commend him for starting this movement because it's needed if we as conservatives are going to do more than just commiserate in misery or uh, or preach to the choir. We have to do something. Ryan Gerdusky is doing something. Go to 1776projectpack.com and see what you can do to help as well because you are needed in this fight. In addition, my friend Chris Rufo, again, not an ad. I just think he's doing fabulous work. He's exposing critical race theory in schools and corporations. He is pushing state legislatures to ban it from public school systems. I believe it's almost two dozen states that he's gotten legislation now just in the past year. Two dozen states have either attempted to or have banned this from public schools all because of Chris Rufo's incredible journalism exposing critical race theory, infiltrating our society. The other thing you can do is you can pressure your state representatives and your school board members to ban critical race theory. You can make sure that it's exposed, that we know, that parents know that it's being taught, that school board members have to answer, do you support this or do you oppose it? That they are on record on what they think about critical race theory. And you can pressure your state representatives, your state legislature to ban it from public schools. So those are some action items that you can do. You can also, conservatives can make evil in general, which critical race theory is, you can make evil toxic culturally, okay? So a good example of this, again, my friend Chris Rufo was accused by the left of being a charlatan for, or not by the left, actually, I think this was by the Never Trump right, um, accused of being a charlatan for how he has exposed critical race theory. Okay, this is the tweet. Quote, Christopher Rufo has become one of the go-to critics of critical race theory. Here he is essentially giving away the game. For Rufo, it is all about branding. And the audacity of his charlatanry is breathtaking. So first of all, I don't think anybody who watches Christopher Rufo's work or follows it understands the problem here. Okay, so this is what Rufo responded to give him a fair response here. He goes, your point? I identified a problem and created a strategy to solve it. In less than a year, my work has inspired a presidential order, legislation in red states, and bills in the House and Senate. I'm driving outcomes in the real world, and you are just moaning about it. <laughs> Which is a great answer, right? But th this, is what, this is what he did. He said, quote, We have successfully frozen their brand, critical race theory, into the public conversation and are steadily driving up negative perceptions of it. We will eventually turn it toxic. 
as we put all of the various cultural insanities under that brand category. The goal is to have the public read something in the newspaper and immediately think critical race theory. We've decodified the term and we'll recodify it to annex the entire range of cultural constructions that are unpopular with Americans. That is absolutely brilliant. That is what's called playing offense. That is what's called not playing defense. You can culturally make a topic or an evil toxic in the eyes of the American people. When you do that culturally, what happens? When you win a cultural battle that translates into a political battle, politics is downstream of culture. You have to win the cultural battle first before you're going to win legislatively. Chris Rufo is an excellent example of this. Excellent example of this. We've had other victories of this nature in the conservative movement as well. Linda Sarsour comes to mind. She was forced out of the Women's March, which she co-founded. She was the chair of it because she's an anti-Semite. And we made her brand toxic. Instead of Linda Sarsour, every time her name was mentioned, people thought, well, isn't that the girl that's super anti-Semitic? Isn't that the girl that hates Jewish people? Isn't that the girl that's horrible towards women who are pro-life, women who are Christian, women who are not rapidly pro-abortion, Jewish women, women who support the Second Amendment and the First Amendment. We created, and we didn't create, because she created this herself. She was toxic. We just made sure people knew she was toxic. And the result, she was forced out of the Women's March. She had to resign, and you don't hear her name anymore, associated with any liberal cause, because her name is toxic to liberalism. Likewise, Patrice Coolers. Patrice Coolers was the founder, the co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement. She had to step down. Why? Because her brand became toxic. We took her own words. The conservative movement took her own words and made sure that when people heard the name Patrice Coolers, they thought of the video that Patrice Coolers is admitting, I'm a trained Marxist. That they thought, that people thought of the video of her saying, essentially, that she was proud of the comparison to Mao Zedong. That when people heard her name, they didn't think of civil rights or equal justice for all because that's not what she's fighting for. That they thought of these radical leftist, anti-family, anti-law enforcement, anti-police, anti-American ideology that she stood for. That she's also a hypocrite because she bought $3 million worth of homes and was also an anti-capitalist. So when her name was mentioned, it became so toxic that she had to step away from the Black Lives Matter movement so that the Black Lives Matter movement didn't also become toxic. This is conservatives playing the culture war and winning. These are battles where we played offense instead of defense, and we won. We won small victories. It's not over, but we won. Black Lives Matter, remember, Black Lives Matter is the brainchild or the activist arm, if you will, of critical race theory. So not only are we winning that legislatively, thanks in large part to Chris Rufo and his amazing journalism, we're winning culturally because we're creating a toxic narrative. And when I say creating, again, we're not inventing this. We are exposing the toxicity that surrounds the leadership of Black Lives Matter. Okay, speaking again of fighting this fight together, I ask you, please to join me over on Locals. First of all, we're having a ton of fun on Locals. I ask just this weekend, what do people care about? What do you want to hear about um, this week on the show? And we had some great discussions about what people care about, what they're not hearing on the mainstream media, what they're afraid to talk about on other big tech platforms. Locals, of course, is the, the tech platform, the social media platform started by Dave Rubin. And the hallmark of Locals is free speech. It's community. 
So if you become a Liz Wheeler Show VIP uh, on our community, on Locals, you get access to all this behind-the-scenes content. Not only is it behind the scenes of my show, there's question and answers. There's all kinds of fun stuff that we do. We have great discussions over there. And you get to see stuff that other people don't see, right? You get to see things. You get to see the truth before we even talk about it on the show oftentimes. So please um, join us on Locals, lizwheelershow.com slash Locals. The monthly subscription is $9. If you really want a good deal, which if you're like me, you do, you can sign up for the annual option for just $72. That is four months free. I'll do the math for you, four months free. So come support the show. Let's get to know each other. Become a Liz Wheeler Show VIP today at lizwheelershow.com slash locals. Okay, now it is time for Hot Takes, the hero of the week. This is perhaps my favorite story that I've heard all week. Um, If I lived in this area, I would absolutely support this business. There was a cafe in Northern California who is posting, this this is so amazing, posting a $5 fee for people if they come into the cafe and brag about giving getting the COVID vaccine or if they wear a mask while ordering it. $5 charged extra if you brag about getting the COVID vaccine or if you wear a mask while ordering. I love this so much. Literally, is there anything worse than people that only brag about getting the COVID vax, the vax braggers? It's like, do you not have the social, um, any, any kind of social benefit? Do you not have the social skill to talk about anything other than the, the vax? Well, this cafe says, sorry, we're going to charge you $5 for having to listen to that. I love it so much. Okay, that's the hero of the week, but this was a very, very close runner up because I think this is so awesome. In Idaho, the lieutenant governor, while she was acting, this is Janice McGeechan, while she was acting as governor, she signed an executive order banning mask mandates. Okay, banning mask mandates. Now, the funny part of this is that the governor was out of town and he is a mask mandate supporting governor. So the lieutenant governor, when she was acting as governor, she signed an executive order banning mask mandates. She said, today, as acting governor of the state of Idaho, I signed an executive order to protect the rights and liberties of individuals and businesses by prohibiting the state and its political subdivisions, including public schools, from imposing mask mandates in our state. Kudos, Lieutenant Governor Janice McGeechan for doing this. And unfortunately, I still totally appreciate that she did this. The governor, Brad Little, repealed it as soon as he returned. What a weenie. Janice McGeechan for the win here. The next hot take. So this one really, as a, as a former high school athlete, one who trained with both boys and girls on our swim team, this, this just really burns me up. Okay, so USA Today censored a high school athlete for saying the word male. The girl's name is Chelsea Mitchell. She was a high school track runner, and she was defeated by transgender individuals, that is biological males who identify as female. She wrote an op-ed in USA Today called Fastest Runner in Connecticut, and obviously she got defeated by males. USA Today published it at first, but then in the face of backlash, they censored the word male. They said they censored it for hateful language, and the hateful language they were talking about was male. This is the addendum that they added to the column. Quote, this column has been updated to reflect USA Today's standards and style guidelines. We regret that hurtful language was used. End quote. Hurtful language. Biology is hurtful language. This was not an insult against the transgender person. This was not, this was not bullying. She literally just identified the men for what they were. Biological men, which is even redundant in itself. They were born male. They have male DNA. They still have male DNA. 
doesn't matter how they identify. It doesn't matter if they took hormones. It doesn't even matter if they have surgery. They are still men. That's not controversial. It's not intolerant. It's not exclusionary. It's just a fact. You can be compassionate to people that suffer from gender dysphoria without buying into the delusion of the radical left. It's not hurtful. USA Today ought to be ashamed of themselves. This is what Chelsea Mitchell wrote. It was titled, I was the fastest girl in Connecticut, but transgender athletes made it an unfair fight. Is anything hateful about that? She goes, I've lost four women's state championship titles, two all New England awards, and numerous other spots in the podium to male runners. I was bumped to third place in the 55 meter dash in 2019 behind two male runners. With every loss, it gets harder and harder to try again. She said, that's a devastating experience. It tells me that I'm not good enough that my body isn't good enough, and that no matter how hard I work, I'm unlikely to succeed because I'm a woman. She said the CIAC, that's her conference, allows biological males to compete in women's and girls' sports. As a result, two males began racing in girls' track in 2017. In the 2017, 2018, and 2019 seasons alone, these males took 15 women's state track championship titles, titles held in 2016 by nine different girls, and more than 85 opportunities to participate in higher-level competitions that belonged to female track athletes. Mitchell writes, that's because males have massive physical advantages. Their bodies are simply bigger and stronger on average than female bodies. It's obvious to every single girl on the track. She writes, besides the psychological toll of experiencing unfair losses over and over, the CIAC's policy has been more tangible, has more tangible harms for women. It robs girls of the chance to race in front of college scouts who show up for elite meets and to compete for the scholarships and opportunities that come with college recruitment. She writes, I'll never know how my college recruitment was impacted by losing these four state championship titles to a male. When colleges looked at my record, they didn't see the fastest girl in Connecticut. They saw a second or third place runner. End quote. Chelsea Mitchell, you are fighting the good fight. I'm super proud of you as a former high school athlete. I'm super proud of you. It is obvious that male bodies are stronger and faster in general compared to women. And it obviously is unfair for men to compete against women. You keep fighting the good fight and you have our support. Okay, that is the great and powerful Jay Hay, my producer, telling me that we're out of time. We have more to talk about, but you will have to tune in tomorrow for the more that we will talk about. In the meantime, think for yourself. Use critical thought, but not critical theory. Question authority. Follow the facts and do not let government or corporate wokeism or anybody bully you into being a sheep. Please subscribe to my show on Apple Podcasts. Download it give me a five-star rating, write a glowing review for me because this helps us move up the charts, which helps other people discover the show, which helps people hear reality. Thank you to everyone who, is also, who has already subscribed. This is The Liz Wheeler Show.